0: You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for
1: busy GPs.
0: Hello and welcome to The Good GP. Before we start, I'd like to pay my respects to the traditional custodians on the lands on which we're listening. I'm on Noongar country, the traditional lands of the Wajuk people, and I pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Today, I'm interviewing Dr Helen Wilcox, who's a Perth-based GP, and Director of the Doctors' Health Advisory Service of WA, or DASWA. In our conversation, we're discussing the keys to success for seeing doctors as patients. Welcome, Helen.
1: Uh, Thank you very much for having me aboard, Sean.
0: Good stuff. So, Helen, let's leap straight into it. As doctors, when looking after our own health, what should we do? And what do we actually do?
1: Thanks, Sean. Well, the first thing to say is that what we we should do is to treat ourselves with the respect and care and nurturing that we would for um, any of our patients, which means we uh, should not assess and treat ourselves and we should embrace having a healing and peaceful experience by seeing our own doctor. And there's of the benefits in doing things this way. You get objective care. Um, sometimes our clinical reasoning methods, which have been honed beautifully over years and decades of patients, cannot be applied objectively and independently to our own health. You also get the confidentiality that you might not get if you were consulting uh, with another doctor or a colleague informally. And you get the access to all that doctor's expertise, not just their own diagnostic and management reasoning, but their access to... Different knowledge bases, their access to referral networks, their ability to advocate for other doctors, you get their coordinating your care, and importantly, and on a sobering note, you get their paper trail. So you get their record keeping, which w- would provide you medical legal protection. Should it be that there is a situation whereby a doctor's competence is or capacity is questioned. And there is a need to demonstrate that the person indeed did have good capacity and was functional and able to perform all their duties. So that's what we should do. We should seek our own doctor. But when you look at what doctors actually do, a lot of doctors do do that for all or at least part of their medical health issues. And I think certainly my experience seeing doctors as patients, I see a bit of a generational change and a culture shift whereby a lot of the younger doctors are Very familiar with the fact that they should establish themselves with a GP at times when they are not in crisis or needing acute care, and then maintain contact with that GP periodically. Mm -hmm. That doesn't always happen because there are doctors have other options. They can ignore it (laughs) if it's not bleeding and it hasn't fallen off. uh, Then that is uh, then that's then that's uh, we'll just wait and see if it gets better. They might try some mild treatments, and I still remember fondly the patient who came, the doctor patient who came in to me with uh, not, um, otitis external that wasn't getting better. And I asked what he'd been using and he'd been using his dogs, antibacterial and antifungal, <laughs> which were probably a lot more potent than the, than the otodex I suggested he get over the counter. But yes, we might try our own treatment. If we are in a relationship with a doctor or living with a doctor, we may ask them for their advice. We might undertake our own prescribing for schedule four drugs. We may informally consult with a colleague or we may refer ourselves on to other other hospital-based specialist colleagues rather than GPs. So I think these are these are I don't mean it by any means to cast dispersions on the doctors who do this, because there's frequently many good reasons in a doctor's mind as to why they might not seek their own care. In practical terms, getting time off during the day to fit in with a doctor who works sessionally can be really, really difficult, especially mm-hmm. for those junior doctors who are not yet established in private medicine and are are working standard hours and finding a good doctor who is near your place of practice especially for junior doctors who are moving around different hospital sites through no choice of their own can be very difficult and there may be doctors um, so the practical side of it is there but there may be doctors who also carry out a reluctance and a, a fear of their confidentiality being breached they they judge themselves for having a physical or mental complaint, they are embarrassed perhaps, especially if it's a reproductive or sexual or mental health or addiction issue. Yep. And there are certainly yeah. some doctors who may well feel that they could do a better job themselves, especially if they've assessed that their presenting complaint is within their own sphere of expertise. And I think also there's a, a, a fair bit of misinformation out there about the implications for registration, for indemnity, for health insurance should a doctor consult another doctor. And part of our work at Daswa is and at all the doctors' health services is correcting people's impression of that mm. information. Yeah. But there's lots of reasons why a doctor may not go and see their own doctor, and we don't wish to judge them at all for that. I guess I'm saying this now, so that people who are seeing doctors as patients can anticipate some of the issues that might come up and plan advance for those.
0: Yeah. Okay. Good advice. So, if you are seeing a doctor as a patient for the first time, what are some of the really important things to cover to ensure that you develop a, a great long-term relationship?
1: I think the first thing is to approach the consult with an air of positivity and optimism. I think doctors are the ideal patients because we're health literate. Sure. We have more than a basic knowledge of self-care. We're good at, at um, scrutinizing and discerning among along with the health information out there in the popular press. We often are f- financially able to support care in the private system rather than the public system. Um, and there's usually some, there's often some insight into mental health issues that have developed over the course of a, a medical career, especially if they've been reflected back in formal feedback or, or via supervisors in the past. So the first thing to do is approach it, as I say, with some positivity and some optimism. I've often had the phrase said to me, Sean, that you should treat a doctor like any other patient. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and say I don't think you should.
0: Mm, because I'd agree. I yeah. think
1: at the outset you've got to acknowledge that the person is a doctor and they could have chosen any doctor and that you are honoured that that they that, and pleased that they chose you. One thing I do find interesting is when I see doctor patients where I know they're a doctor but they don't know that I know and they've chosen not to tell me. And on one level it can be a little bit of a, barrier to an honest therapeutic relationship. But on another level, I think it usually tells me something about, I guess, their fear, about their self-stigma, and that I might manage them differently. So at the outset, I would tend to say to patients, look, thank you for coming and seeing me. I'm delighted to see you as a doctor. And this is where I say there is that I will treat you like any other patient when it comes to my clinical reasoning and my clinical decision-making. I'll apply all my good frameworks that have um, stood the test of time when it comes to some of the operational aspects of the consultation or some of the sh- decision-making between us, we might well do things a little bit differently and we'll talk in a moment, Sean, about the concept of blended care and what that looks like. Mm-hmm. So I think that acknowledgement is really important from the outset. Yeah. I tend to restate confidentiality and there's lots of ways in which you can do this and I tend to speak about the cone of silence or the concrete co- the concrete bunker in which this consultation is heard Another very senior GP with great expertise in doctor's health, Louise Stone, speaks about her consult room as the place where shame goes to die. Uh, I find myself also talking about the phrase that this consultation is a judgment-free zone, which I've I've taken from um, Annie Grace and her um, alcohol experiment. And I have no doubt that our listeners will have their own phraseology, but just an overt statement about confidentiality is key. And this is, a, this is one of the few times where I offer patients if they want me to use the confidential button on my desktop software, whereby only I can see the notes so the colleagues in my practice can't. I'm always a little bit hesitant about that because I think that can pose a bit of a barrier to continuity, but I will offer it if it's really important for the patient. Mm. Yep. We could talk a little bit about billing now if you wanted to. Uh, Sean, I know this is a controversial topic. What uh, I, might, I might even jump in and ask I- you. I, yeah
0: look yeah look I, I do have a number of doctor patients and I think it is something that's important to to mention on the first consultation. So you set you know you sort of set the expectations and the ground rules. Yeah. One school of thought is if you just automatically bog Bill, then some people won't come back because they don't want to feel like they're impinging and taking advantage of the relationship. Mm-hmm. is that the other school of thought is that it's part of your Hippocratic oath and that you should look after your colleagues without charge. My personal approach, and I don't know that these are right or wrong here, is to say to the doctor patient, look, I'm happy to go with whatever you would prefer. I'm very happy to bulk bill, but equally, if you would prefer to be privately billed, I'm happy with that too. What would you prefer and then I just make a note on the record, you know, prefers to be – and it's surprising how many doctors actually would prefer to be privately billed. And then I just leave that on the record and, and it doesn't have to be broached again. How do, uh, how do you deal with it, Helen?
1: Oh, that, that's perfect. Because I, I think, this again, this, this also encourages some honesty into trans, transparency. Mm. I do, I'm thinking back to a talk I did with a group of GPs not all that long ago. I think I had about 20 or 30 of them in the room. And I asked them – about when they go and see their own doctor, who expects to be bulk-billed and no hands went up. And then I said, and so when you see a doctor as a patient, who bulk-bills them? And nearly every hand went up.
0: <laughs> yeah, so that's I, right.
1: I think doctors and especially some of the younger doctors can really feel this tension here. And we have had the dogma of the hippotratic growth put into us but the listener, the GP listeners of this podcast are no strangers to the fact that you know, universal belt billing is not a sustainable way of managing general That's practice. That's right. Yeah. So I think getting it out there at the outset is important. It prevents any awkwardness. My personal approach is that I will belt bill my medical students because I see their financial uh, circumstances. I see the time commitments that come with medical training, and I see the difficulty at holding down part-time jobs and also here in 2023, Sean, I see the cost of living pressures that they face. So I'm mm. always happy to bump with my medical students. I tend to do a lot of reduced billing and I will save them at the outset. It's my practice when I see doctor patients to reduce billing, which I think strikes a balance between making this practice sustainably, we both respecting my time, but also acknowledging the fact that you're, you're a colleague and is that okay with you? And then I would make a note that we, we do reduced billing going forward. Yep. This is usually followed shortly after by some of the non-monetary benefits, I think, that we provide our doctor patients or perhaps our, our non-doctor patients might not access in terms of quick access to us, in terms of blended care, in terms of some of the shared decision-making models. So there's other benefits that come from being a doctor as a patient
0: well i think I think that's that's absolutely right. And I think for doctors, it is access that's the issue. So yeah. you know I will give out my personal direct email address to most mm-hmm. of my doctor patients, yes. whereas I would never give it out, well, rarely give it out to other patients.
1: Look, I'm um, exactly the same on that. I tell you you know quick access is really important, and I will say to my I will say to my patients that we will need a system of you to access my care. I will say I prefer not to be texted because often I can't respond to texts in a timely manner. But if you email me at the practice, I will get back to you on the same or my next working day. And I often find that if my patients are trying to book online and they're trying to work around their roster and my roster, we may not get a compatible time. But you, um, if they just try and book by the front desk, that you and I both know and many of our listeners will know, that there's always some discretionary appointments that can be given yeah. at the behest of the doctor. So I'll encourage my doctor patients that if we can't find an appointment time that um, is suitable for them, that I'm happy to receive an email about it and we'll find a discretionary booking there. I've never had anybody take advantage of that or misuse it.
0: I'm um, the same. It, it no. is, yeah, colleagues are generally very respectful of that sort of thing. Yeah. By the same token, I don't give out my personal mobile number but no. email I think is manageable so yeah. and and that yeah. seems to work quite well. Yeah. yeah. So Helen how does a doctor patient consult differ from a standard patient? You've covered some of this already but are there any additional points?
1: So I think the, I've mentioned blended care already so let's unpack that a little bit. So I guess there's three care options and either end of the spectrum there's the treating doctor arranges everything. The doctor patient arranges everything. And most doctor-patient successful doctor-patient relationships end up somewhere in the middle. And I think it's important or incumbent upon the treating doctor to lay a bit of a framework for this out with their patients at the start. In terms of writing referrals, I tend to insist that I will write the referrals here because I need that paper trail. Remember, one of the reasons why we want to establish doctors within models of care with their own GP is for record-keeping purposes. So that's the first thing. So I want to write referrals and I I tend to think that my doctor patients are reliable enough and organised enough that it would be rare for them to get to the day of a specialist appointment and not have noted the need for a referral. When it comes to prescriptions, well, the law differs across Australia and you and I are doing this from Western Australia where it is legally possible for a doctor to write their own prescription for a Schedule 4 medication, but we all know that the Code of Conduct and our medical defence organisations strongly recommend that we do not do this. The only time I would countenance a doctor patient writing their own script is if it was a single prescription for a long-term stable medication that I've previously prescribed and that they let me know straight away and that I was able to see them before they needed the repeat prescription. And I find that if I state that I'm accepting of the self-prescribing, then the patients patients tend to respect that. We know that for some some conditions. Neurotractive infections is one that often comes to mind that GPs or any prescriber might feel the, the urge to get themselves onto treatment as soon as possible. And so that's probably, if I do have a patient with recurrent UTIs, just as I would for any of my other patients, I think I can probably anticipate the prescribing need and give them a deferred script. And I think investigations is the other one. Look, everyone feels differently. I don't like my doctor patients organising their own investigations because they may not order the same investigations that I would order under my own clinical reasoning. And then I'm always uncomfortable if the test result is abnormal about what action has been taken. And also I find that copying results don't always make their way to me in a timely fashion. So that is one thing that I do find that patients tend to do, especially in their own chronic stable conditions. But again, I really like to set up systems where that's, that doesn't need to happen. Yeah. So far, I'm describing things which are the same as any doctor-patient consultation, aren't they? Okay, so how is it different? How is it different? So look, I think this is where we come down to a shared decision-making and a shared responsibility. And this is, I mean, it's very normal for doctors to self-diagnose and have an idea of what tests or what referrals or management they are seeking. And so, as we will with any patient, I'm very careful to after I've given my opinion of what might be going on, I ask the patient if they've got any thoughts on, based on their own experiences, as a very open question, not asking them for a diagnosis or a recommendation, but just asking as an open question, what's their perspective on things? How does that tally with their own interpretation of things? So we're almost we're almost comparing our two models of clinical reasoning, if you like, mm. and that's something obviously you wouldn't do with a patient who didn't have medical knowledge or clinical knowledge. And then when it comes to management. If it's something that we're going to manage according to a set guideline or if we are operating in an evidence-rich zone, i probably go into a little bit more detail than I normally would about saying that, you know, why a particular drug choice is happening or why I'm choosing not to uh, prescribe or undertake investigations. And so you can actually have a lovely conversation about, you know, current evidence or lack thereof <laughs> and, yep. and which particular clinical guideline you, you you both ascribe to. So you can have a lovely intellectual discussion there. And, again, that's just an indirect way of the patient being able to contribute their expertise. Mm. When it comes to referral pathways, I think unless you're seeing a patient who works in the same suburb, the same clinical sphere as you, they're not necessarily going to have the same referral networks as you do. So yeah. I tend to say I would usually refer you to a couple of choices. And then this is where I think it's important to give the doc- get the doctor patient to have some input because they may have a very strong reason for not wishing to see a certain doctor um, yep. they may have a very strong you know personal or previous interpersonal reason for not wishing to attend a certain specialist practice or to attend a certain hospital and i think we've got to acknowledge that and respect that and the, the fa- i think the final thing i often do is the things that i will do i will put in an email to myself or email to me and the patient and the things that they will do and then i will copy that email across to the patient so we've both got a written version of our own care and I find that if they are then on their personal email, if they have an, an email from me outlining the, the assessment and the plan going forward, it's just a visual prompt to them next time they're in their email about looking after themselves and following on mm. with the plan and saying, oh, I'm not bleeding, it hasn't pulled it off. We're <laughs> <And> meeting <I'm laughs> about it. So I, 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 like to, I like to do that.
0: That's great. Look, that's really good advice. Well, look, thank you, Helen. It's been a great pleasure talking to you as usual. Now, where can GPs go if they want to learn more about this or indeed if they want to find a GP for themselves?
1: So for GPs who want to learn more about this, I think, first of all, I'd encourage all GPs to assume the mantle, to know that their own clinical reasoning and frameworks are well up to the ability of, of managing a colleague So not everyone will need special training. They will just be able to, you know, people will be able to deploy their their best standard of care and that will be more than adequate. If people have a particular interest in some of the clinical issues which may present uh, more frequently or have specific significance in doctors, and I'm thinking about addiction, I'm thinking about certain mental health conditions, I'm thinking about trauma, I'm thinking about physical illness that may have an occupational perspective, then Probably a really good place to go to is each state's doctor's health service. So each state in Australia or each state and territory in Australia has their own doctor's health advisory service, and we are formed under the umbrella of the Doctor's Health Alliance, which can easily be found with a Google, and that will give you your state-based options for providing training and education on seeing doctors as patients. And then moving across to the second part of your question, Sean, which is about how to find a GP, most or all of the state-based organisations have lists of doctors who are interested and available and keen to see their doctor patients. And many of those uh, state-based organisations will have searchable engines. So you can choose someone who is of a gender or a cultural background or has clinical interests which align with your needs. Especially when you say this to younger doctors is that don't assume that the first GP you see is going to be a perfect fit. And That's not you. That's not them. It's just it's just fit. It's, it's, it's personality and clinical approach. And so just as we get three quotes for anything in our other aspects of our lives, you may see a second GP and a third GP before you find the one that is a really good long-term fit for you. And so do that little bit of investment in seeing a couple of doctors, if need be, to find the person who can look after you. Because that, that relationship is so powerful. You know, to be able to have, be able to, put, for doctor patients to be able to put their, their trust in someone, someone who can put their needs first, someone who can give them the TLC that they deserve so that they can then go out and give that TLC to their own patients and their loved ones. That is such a powerful and such a critical uh, relationship. And it's a worthwhile yeah. investment, I think, yeah. in your clinical and personal future.
0: 100%. Could not agree more. Thank you again, Helen, and um, look forward to speaking again soon.
1: It's a pleasure, Sean. Thanks so much for having me along. Thanks for listening to The Good GP Podcast, a proud member of the Talking Health Tech Podcast Network. Make sure you're subscribed on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions or would like to contact The Good GP, send an email to thegoodgp at gmail.com. The content of this podcast represents the opinions of the good GP, hosts and guests of the show. The content is aimed at general practitioners working in the Australian context and is not intended to represent medical advice. Any listeners experiencing symptoms or who have concerns about their health should seek advice from a registered health professional. We make every effort to ensure that the information shared is accurate and up to date at the time of recording, but welcome any feedback or corrections. The content of this podcast is general in nature and does not refer to specific patient management. We recommend all health professionals review local and up-to-date guidelines prior to any clinical decisions.